0: How many of you are prone to motion sickness? You get motion sickness, a couple of you. Sometimes airplanes get to me, uh, and as I've gotten older, I, I don't agree with roller coasters anymore. It just doesn't work for me, and, and I'd love to someday go on a cruise. I think cruises are great, but I doubt I'll ever go because I fear seasickness uh, and a waste of money and a miserable time. But... um. There are a bunch of things that you can actually do to minimize motion sickness, and besides a Dramamine-induced coma, uh, one of them is to fix your eyes on the horizon, fix your eyes on some uh, point ahead of you, some fixed location. When you're vacillating, it helps to uh, fix your eyes on something immovable. Life is vacillating, and so we need to anchor ourselves to something immovable, In the Psalms, God is described as a rock. David wrote in Psalm 40, verse 2, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, which means this swampy mess. Um, And David said, God set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. God is the fixed reality that secures the roughest life. Hebrews 6.19 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that endures into the inner place behind the curtain. And that's talking about hope in Christ, the perfect high priest. Jesus is the only sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. That's Christ. And I guess the point this morning is really quite simple. Life is turbulent. And we need to anchor ourselves to a secure stronghold. We all must look to Christ, the magnificent and immovable mountain of God's glory, and revel in His greatness. Watch what Jesus can do. And then be so impressed that He Uh, can do these incredible things that you worship Him and that you trust Him. Each of us should be so astonished at the divine capability of Jesus that belief and worship and praise are the only logical and inescapable responses. So this morning, let's gaze at the glory of God. I wish chapter 11 could be one long sermon. But, but it would be long and hard to endure. This chapter is spectacular, but we can't rush through it or we'll miss something and we'll miss part of the wonder of it all. And so today is the glorious summit that we have been waiting for. Lazarus was terminally ill. Jesus said this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus stayed two days longer. Lazarus died. Only then did Jesus and his disciples head across the Jordan, back near Jerusalem to Bethany. As Jesus neared Bethany, Lazarus was in the tomb four days. Martha met him on the way. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha believed Jesus was the Son, or the Christ, the Son of God who was coming into the world, and that is where we left off. And we head into verse 28. We'll notice that Jesus purposefully set the stage to showcase the glory of God. Jesus purposefully set the stage to showcase the glory of God. Verse 4 is the anchor of John 11. Lazarus' illness, death, and resurrection was purposed to showcase the glory of God and magnify Jesus as the Messiah. When you study this passage, understand what John wanted you to see. The doxas to Theeu, the glory of God, the splendor and beauty and radiance and power of God. Right after Martha affirmed the identity of Jesus in verse 27, she went and called her sister Mary She told her privately, the teacher is here and calling for you. The word teacher is important. Jesus is a didaskalos, a teacher or rabbi of divine truth. Not only is he a teacher, he is truth. Martha was similar to Nicodemus who said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. First century rabbis did not teach women. That did not happen. But here we have... um, Martha calling Jesus teacher. Jesus taught women. He cherished women. He wanted women to believe in him. So when Jesus called Mary, Mary responded. She rose quickly. She went to Jesus, who was setting the stage. Jesus didn't return to Bethany to console or grieve with Martha and Mary. Why didn't he, or why did he return? It was all about showcasing the glory of God. Verse 30 is interesting. Jesus didn't go to the house and offer his condolences or or empathy. After talking with Martha, he stayed put. He stayed right where he was. He didn't continue to go to the house. Why? He was setting the stage. Watch what happened. Verse 31. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. The glory of God would not shine at home, it would shine at the tomb. Calling Mary drew a crowd. They were there to mourn with her, to support her, and so when she got up to leave, then they went with her out to the the tomb. They followed her and they were in for an incredible show. Mary reached Jesus. The crowd followed. She fell at his feet. And I don't think at this moment she was bitter. I don't think she was incriminating. But she was very honest. And she did say, Lord, if you had been here, if you were just here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. Her sister said that too. Mary was so sorrowful. So deep in grief that she said what was on her mind. Why, Jesus? Why, Jesus? You you, you weren't here. You weren't here to save my brother before he died. You can sense the emotion in the moment. Well, Jesus saw her weeping. Jesus saw the Jews weeping. That's the same Greek word, Kleo, sorrowful tears and wailing. You could hear it, you could see the tears. It's what Peter did after he betrayed Jesus. What a sad scene. Charles Darwin said, We must look at weeping as an incidental result, as purposeless as the secretion of tears from a blow outside the eye. Darwin missed so much. (laughs) Only humans cry and our tears are filled with purpose. We produce three types of tears. Basal tears keep our eyes moist and healthy, reflex tears which uh, wash out uh, junk that gets caught in our eyes, smoke, dust, whatever. Emotional tears or crying are caused by hormones released when the endocrine system is triggered. Emotional tears are unique from the other two. They contain certain chemicals not found in basal or reflex tears. Some scientists hypothesize that emotional tears are actually ridding the body of stress-related toxins or waste. Whether that's true or not, it's generally accepted that crying is beneficial for us. It's been reported that Quote, suppressing tears increases stress levels and contributes to diseases aggravated by stress, such as high blood pressure, heart problems, and peptic ulcers, end of quote. So here Mary and the Jews are, they're weeping emotional tears, the body's way of responding to deep sorrow, and Jesus then responds to them. His response may surprise you. Jesus was deeply moved with indignation and greatly troubled at this scene. He was moved with indignation. Now, Jesus is a a complex person to say the least, uh, the God-man. So understanding his emotions is going to be complex for us. We're not exactly sure what the the God-man Jesus Christ was feeling at any moment. But consider a few things with me that helps set the stage here. Number one, Jesus didn't arrive to console. He arrived to give and strengthen faith, their faith. Number two, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus and his disciples. Number three, Jesus did some very unusual things in order to reveal the glory of God. Number four, faith in Christ is the most important thing. That's what he was after. And number five, anything that gives or strengthens faith is loving, radically loving from God. Look closely at verse 33. It says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, when we hear that Jesus was deeply moved, we probably think compassion, we probably go to compassion. The ESV and NIV translate it deeply moved, which sounds kind of like Jesus was deeply touched by this moment, by the sorrow of everyone. But there is a problem with that translation. The Greek word is embrymaomai. Embrymaomai. And it is used only three other times outside of John 11, and it's used twice. So it's used a total of five times in the New Testament. It means to be moved with indignation or to be angry. The word connotes sternness. Here's how the word is used outside of John 11, because how that's used will help us kind of piece together how how it might be uh, used in John. So in Matthew 9.30, Jesus healed two blind men, and then it says he sternly warned them. He sternly warned them. Jesus gave a strict and firm warning. In Mark 1:43, Jesus was moved to pity. So he was feeling pity for a leper. He healed the leper. And then it says he sternly charged him. Or he warned him and sent him away. Again, it's a strict and firm warning. Then in Mark 14, verse 5. Some critics of Jesus saw Mary anointing Jesus with this really expensive ointment. And they were indignant. They were angry that she would waste some of this on Jesus. So they're getting stirred up emotionally. And in verse 5, it says they scolded her or rebuked her harshly. That's the same Greek word. Nowhere in Scripture is embrimaomai used of compassion it means to be enraged. The New Living Translation, which I think is a terrible translation, it's very loose, it doesn't honor the original Greek, but it gets this right. It says, he was moved with indignation, and he was. He was. D.A. Carson suggests that most English translations unjustifiably soften the impact of these verses into empathy or grief or pain. Carson says, quote, invariably it invariably suggests anger, outrage or emotional indignation. RC Sproul, a great thinker, said Jesus was irate, something infuriated Jesus. He was greatly disturbed in his in himself, in his soul. In verse 35, Jesus wept, but it was a different kind of weeping than Mary and the crowd. It's a different Greek word. He didn't well aloud. He, he shed tears. Why the indignation? Why the troubled spirit? Why the tears? Well, that's not easy to answer. That's trying to figure out what the Son of God was feeling at that moment. I, I don't know completely. The emotions of the God-man Jesus are intricate, to say the least. We don't know exactly what he was feeling, but here are a few thoughts to consider as you are trying to piece together what Jesus was doing in this moment. Commentators vary in opinion. Some say this was compassion. And I think Jesus was absolutely compassionate, but that's not what verse 33 communicates. Other commentators say Jesus was indignant at the impact of the final enemy of death, the evil and blow of death. And that just enraged him to see how the sinful consequences of, of, uh, of death came about. He hated to see how sin, sickness, and death impacted the people, how death attacked the original beauty and shalom of creation. I think that was probably part of his emotion. But there's another possible interpretation that I find persuasive Because it matches the theme of John all along up until this point, and it is anchored in some key verses and nuances in John 11. It's likely that Jesus was moved to anger because they didn't trust him. They didn't trust him. He deeply loved them, he told them what was coming. Yet everyone was so burdened with grief that they failed to look to him. They failed to see the glory of God in him. Their grief may very well have been worldly grief, not godly grief. Now where does that interpretation come from? Look back to verses three and four in your own text. The the messenger sent from Martha and Mary heard Jesus say this. This illness does not lead to death It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And that messenger relayed that message back to Martha and Mary. Now jump down to verse 21. Martha isn't caustic, but she does question, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary responded with the same skepticism in verse 32. Inside of these grieving sisters seems to be skepticism for the sovereign plan of God and the goodness of Jesus. It was true. Jesus wasn't there, he didn't make it in time. But it was God's sovereign and good purpose to reveal his glory later in this fantastic display of power. They couldn't see that, so they questioned Jesus. Lastly, in verse 38, Jesus is once again deeply moved to indignation. It's the same Greek word as in verse 33. Why is he angry again? Well, in verse 38, the Greek conjunction un means therefore. Therefore. He was once again moved to anger because some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They questioned him. And he didn't like that. Jesus loved them. I believe Jesus was sympathetic and compassionate. Nonetheless, it seems as if Jesus was moved to righteous indignation because of their lack of faith in his love, goodness, and sovereign plan. I think his tears were an amalgamation of emotions, multifaceted in their scope. The Jews said, see how he loved Him." They looked and they interpreted his tears as love. And Jesus did love Lazarus, absolutely. I think Jesus wept tears of love. I believe he felt their sorrow. But his emotion seemed to contain strong displeasure for their lack of faith in him. Let's bring this home. Grief, as intense as it is at times, should never overshadow the truth and faith and hope in the promises of God. Our confidence in the sovereign plan and goodness of God must triumph over our sorrow. Psalm 130 verses 6-8 through eight, says this, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. When life doesn't make any sense, and everything fails you miserably, and grief is just too much to bear. You're getting buried beneath it. In those moments, when you hope in God, you find your sanctuary in His steadfast love, in His plentiful redemption. Unshakable joy can be maintained inside of grief when your hope is in God. It doesn't appear that the grief of Martha, Mary, and the Jews is cradled in the steadfast love and plentiful redemption of God, even in His promised glorious resurrection that Jesus promised to them. Their grief dimmed the love and power and presence of Jesus for them. It seems reasonable that Jesus would be deeply moved. He would be greatly troubled that they weren't rejoicing in Him in the middle of their affliction In case you may perceive Jesus as being calloused, consider this question. Is it ever justifiable for our grief to overshadow our faith? To to dictate how we respond to life in grief instead of faith. Now I'm not asking whether that happens, I'm asking is it justifiable. Is it ever right? Is it ever good for our grief to grow so intense that we lose focus on the glory and goodness of God? Paul said in Romans fourteen twenty three, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever. And so my question is, shouldn't grief also proceed from faith If you're going to grieve, it has to come from faith in Christ because there are good reasons to grieve, very painful reasons, and there's a way to grieve that is rooted to faith and not rooted in our grief and circumstances. We're tempted to look at the sorrow of Martha and Mary, even the Jews, and excuse them for not really trusting and treasuring Christ. Sorrow is very painful, and, and it can easily overshadow the truth But not even sorrow and affliction should turn our eyes from gazing upon the glory and the beauty of God presented in Jesus Christ, His Son. Our grief should only drive us deeper into the exclusive hope found in Christ alone. Though grief is common and good, we see in the Scripture that Jesus was sorrowful. It's not a sin to be sorrowful. It's a natural reaction But calling God's sovereignty and goodness into question is never right or good. Now, I hope you're hearing this. I hope you're hearing this because no matter how deeply your scars go, and some of you have deep scars. You have been wounded. You have been hurt. And those scars go deep. And your affliction is serious. No matter how deep. It goes, you are never justified in failing to trust in the goodness of God and his tremendous love for you. You're not entitled to look past that. You have to look at the love of Jesus for you if um, it deeply moves Jesus to indignation and greatly troubles Him if your grief robs you of the full and final peace and comfort and satisfaction in His glory amidst your grief. Yes, Jesus identifies with your affliction. But in His affliction, in His affliction, He never, ever, ever took His eyes off the glory of God. He perfectly enjoyed that. So as we're united to Him, He gives us the strength. He enters into our mess. And he helps us and provides for us by his spirit to keep our eyes fixed on the glory and beauty of God in the middle of our affliction. He's the power because he did it right. We don't. We get so distracted. What in the world? And there he is keeping us centered. When you grieve, is it for the glory of God? Is it for the glory of God? Do you trust God while you grieve? Believing that He is enough for you. Folks, these are tough questions. But they're questions that we all have to answer. We need to constantly remember that if we believe, we will see the glory of God and the glory of God is enough. It is enough for us. It's more than just circumstance. Healthy and, and wealthy and safe and comfortable. The crowd headed to the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus wept. He bawled His eyes out. Tears streaming down his face. Some saw Christ's love for Lazarus. Others were skeptical. Man, if this guy could heal a blind man, where was he when they needed him with Lazarus? What a moment of just mixed thoughts, mixed emotions. You know, affliction can veil us from seeing the glory of God. Affliction can just get in the way and we lose sight of the promises of God. Once again, Jesus was deeply moved. He didn't like their skepticism. They all arrived at Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus was buried in a cave, which was customary for more uh, affluent families in the first century. So a big stone was rolled in front of, of this uh, tomb, that's cut out in the rock, and, and it was likely there to prevent animals from getting inside, and maybe even to cut down on a little bit of the smell. Um, Jesus said, take away the stone. Take away the stone. And there was hesitation. It didn't seem like they jumped on that, like, listen, get the stone. There was hesitation there. Have you ever been asked to do something and inside you're like, ah, uh, I don't think that's a good idea. And you're considering what's going on. You're like, this is bad. We shouldn't do this. And so you're hesitating. And, and so if you've ever been in that situation, I think you could probably identify with, with uh, uh, Martha. Martha or Mary, rather, in in this moment. At this point, people don't seem to be making the connection with verse 4 that Jesus could do something to display the glory of God. Martha, the questioner, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. She was kind of like, are you sure you want to remove that? Because it's going to stink. And my brother has been inside there decaying for four days. This is not a good idea. Let's 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 not make matters worse here Jesus. And verse 39 reinforces twice that Lazarus was indeed dead. It says it twice. It's just proving the point he was dead. No tricks, no magic, no illusion, Lazarus was gone. Online, I I found this thing called the blind spot test. Some of you might have taken it before. But on this uh, white piece of paper, you have a dot on the left side and a plus sign on the right side. And you're supposed to close your right eye and focus your left eye on the the, uh, plus sign on the right side. And as you move in closer to the screen, right around 18 inches or so from the screen, the dot on the left completely disappears. It vanishes. You cannot see it. And then you'll like open your eyes, and there it is again. And you close your right eye, and you move in at about 18 or 19 it, inches. You, you can't see it. It just flat out vanishes. Now, of course, it's still there. The reality of the dot has not changed, but our ability to see it, because it falls in our blind spot, we miss it. We can't see what's going on. There's no dot there. Oh, yes, there is. It was there when you were 40 inches away, and it's there when you're, you can't see it at 18 inches away. Grief can create a blind spot. Grief can blind us to what we otherwise would see or should see. Martha was skeptical But Jesus reminded her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Did I not tell you this? Jesus' statement in verse 40 is a summary of what he relayed through the messenger in verse 4 and what he explained directly to Martha in verses 23 and 26 through 26. Somehow, this entire Lazarus situation would result in seeing the glory of God for those who believe in Jesus. When we believe Jesus, we see in Jesus the glory of God. Now, we don't have cable, but I love HGTV. I don't know about you. Love it. Could watch it hours on end. And they have this uh, one show, Fixer Upper. Fixer Upper is awesome. I love this show. And uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines... Uh, and they have four kids, they live on a farm, and they go around Waco, Texas, and they're investing in these homes, and they're helping these homeowners who buy these properties to uh, renovate, and they do amazing work. I mean, they're really good. is very tasteful in what she does. Chip offers this comedic effect, and he does wacko things, but he's like a really hard worker and does a really great job. Well, after they finish and invest all this in the home, they bring the homeowners in front of this huge, massive picture of the home, and, and they're looking at what the home used to be, this old picture, and it's split in the middle, and it's on wheels, and so they're looking at this, and it's in front of the house, and then they pull it away, and they see the renovated house, and the people are like, <gasps> I mean, they, you just see they're like, weird with the, <laughs> my house, you know. And um, it is a great moment of, like, unveiling and revealing this big renovation. It's amazing. And and if you've seen the the tie, something or other, he did this move, that bus, and they moved the Uh, (laughs) bus, same type of thing, this big unveiling. Jesus has set the stage up until this moment for the most fantastic miracle you have ever heard of. You have not encountered something more cool and more glorious and more majestic and more magnificent and more miraculous than this here. This will just blow your mind. It happened. This is history. Folks, this is real. We're not watching this in a movie. This is not a stylized version of something that takes it too far in a film or in a TV movie or whatever a big crowd of people was there to see this. It wasn't special effects. It wasn't magic. It wasn't illusion. It wasn't a movie. It was real. Jesus reveals the glory of God, even in affliction, to produce and strengthen faith in us. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, I want you to listen to this. God is glorious. God is glorious. Glorious, and he is still revealing his glory to people through the truth, through the good news of Jesus Christ. God is able to take the most broken down person, just a broken and fractured life with pain and scars and bruises, and he's able to reveal to them the glory of God and instill in them a faith that will cherish the glory of God even in affliction. What I'm saying is that God can awaken your heart this morning to see and savor His glory and can produce in you hope and joy that endures even the worst of affliction. Without faith in Christ, you don't have that. You don't have that ever-durable hope, and joy. You can't see something that would make all the difference in your life, in the pain and confusion of your life. You're missing out is what I'm telling you. If you don't know Jesus, you're missing out. You can't see. And you need to look to Christ and see and savor his glory. And until you do, you're in the most precarious and uncertain state. God can produce great faith in you Look to the grandeur of Jesus in the gospel, in the Bible, in the word of God. How sad it would be if you wore two eye patches to the Grand Canyon. How sad it would be if, if you're before the breathtaking view of the Grand Tetons and you refuse to open your eyes. <laughs> you didn't want to see. Believe in Jesus Christ and gaze at the glory of God, they took the stone away. Jesus lifted up his eyes and he prayed. He prayed so that every spectator would hear him and believe that God sent him. He prayed so that when they observed what would follow, they would would understand his union with God. They would understand that God is his Father and he was sent from God They would see and sense and experience his divine power and they would be so awestruck at it that they would place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus prayed, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account. He's saying this out loud so they could hear, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. They heard him say that about them. Jesus finished his prayer. The crowd waited. The crowd watched. And then, Lazarus, come out! With power and authority, he told a dead man to live and to come. The impossible happened. Lazarus got up, whatever that moment looked like inside of that tomb, and he responded to the call of Jesus Christ. Verse 44, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Can you see it? Can you see the glory of God? Does this just fall boring? You'd rather watch a football game. You'd rather go shovel the driveway. Or something, probably not that, but something. Can you see the glory of God in that? Are you awestruck? Does it it continue to shoot off the page saying, He did that. He told a dead man. I I don't know about you. I've never been at a funeral yet where some pastor was like, Hmmph! And the guy got out. It's done. The funerals we go to, it's done. This one, Jesus showed up and said, get out and live. And now everybody who's looking around, I want you to know one thing. I am God. What I say goes and I make the dead live. Are you spiritually dead this morning? God can command your soul to live. And He can give you faith. Jesus is sovereign over life. He's sovereign over sickness. He's sovereign over death. Jesus causes the dead to live. You have never seen anything like this. I have never seen anything like this. Nothing is this glorious. If Jesus can cause the dead man Lazarus to live and walk out of that tomb, imagine the life that Jesus can give you. Oh man, can we just treasure him together? He gives life to dead things, and everybody by nature is dead in sin. You're not choosing God. God chooses you, and he awakens your soul because you are a dead soul until God's grace comes and visits you. You have no hope apart from the sovereign grace of God coming to you and awakening your dead soul. And he can, and he does. His effectual grace is something to rejoice over. His power that Jesus gives spiritual life to dead souls and sustains for his people the good life forever. I, I'm not moralizing this. I'm not saying it's an allegory. He raised a dead man to life but He also, in application, has the power to raise the spiritually dead. Jesus is glorified through the resurrection of Lazarus, not simply because of His sheer power and the magnitude of this miracle, but also because He gives and strengthens faith. Verse 45 says it, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him the crowd of eyewitnesses saw what Jesus did. They were paying attention. What would you even say? I got nothing. He just did that. I believe in him. I see the glory of God in Jesus and and I trust him. You're all I want because if you can make that dead guy get up and walk out of that tomb, I don't need anything else. I just need you. I just want to experience that glory forever because I've never seen anything like that. That's what you do when you see the glory of God like we have seen it this morning. You believe it. You trust it. You treasure it. You savor it. You build your life upon it because there's nothing more glorious than this. You either believe it for the first time or you deepen in resolve in your faith Jesus Christ is glorified when people see his great power and beauty and therefore savor him as their their supreme happiness. All the sorrows and tears and lamenting built to something. They built to seeing and savoring and enjoying the glory of God in life after death. Think about that. Seeing the glory of God in life after death. What Jesus did that day is a taste of what is to come. Jesus asked, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And my, did they see it in Him? If you want to see unparalleled joy, if you want to experience the fullness of something that will blow your mind for eternity, and I admit it's dim right now because we're sinful and we're looking and we're like, Man, I just, I know I'm not seeing this like I should. But if you want to see that forever, things that are unfathomable, things that have not been revealed yet in the fullness of the glory of God, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to trust him with your whole heart because if you don't, you're never going to see. And don't you want to see? I want you to see. I want to see. I hope you want me to see. There's a lot of wanting and seeing. All right. Let's just end there. Let's pray. Oh, Father... My, what incredible power Jesus has to raise a dead man to life. And I pray that when we hear about this glorious history, that we are not lulled into a sleep or a stupor or boredom, that we somehow would think about lunch. I shouldn't even mention it because then it's easy to think that. God, I pray that we can see your glory as you have presented it in your Son. Your Son, Jesus, is amazing. And we confess we don't see his glory like we should God, it's just so veiled for me. And so I pray that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, open my eyes even more to see your glory. Maybe someone this morning can't see your glory. I pray that you open their eyes to see it. And I pray that we can love each other, to encourage one another, to grow and to push forward, to see and delight in your beauty and your glory even more by faith. God, help us in these last two songs to rejoice in the truth to rejoice in your son because he is glorious. In the name of Jesus, our glorious Savior, we pray.